Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here on a gorgeous summer's day, uniquely on an island, and I'm in the company of author, illustrator and our guide for the day's walk, Mark Richards. Hello, Mark. (laughs) Hello, David. Uh, We're stranded. We're marooned on an island. We are on an island at the end of a peninsula, and correct me if I'm wrong, Mark, but I think this is the furthest south Country Striders ever been in God. Cumbria. Is that right? Uh, let me think now. I think so. Yes, it is. I'm just looking eastwards from here, and we are further south than uh, Dentdale, perhaps. Yeah. A working hypothesis. So where are we, Mark? Walney Island, which is umbilically linked to Barrow Furness, and uh, you can see the Lakeland Fells to the north of us, they're mm. pretty low on the horizon. Black Coombe is the most tangible maritime mountain I can see. And very hazy, isn't it? We've got this very warm, sometimes muggy summer haze. Yes. And we're looking around now and we can see the sea on pretty much a 270 degree horizon. Perfect blue, lovely light that you do sometimes get in these coastal locations. Mm. Uh, you've not been on Walney before, Mark? Virgin visit, absolutely. Wow. It's magic for me because I'm sure I'll learn a huge amount. Uh, it's a new perspective on Cumbria itself. This is Red Rose country, mm, historically, you might say, yeah. but uh, the name Walney, of course, is much older than any of this rosy business, <laughs> red or white. <laughs> yeah, so Walney Island joined to the Furness Peninsula and its very close neighbour, Barrow, by a road bridge um, that goes into the main town on Walney Island, Vickers Town. Uh, and then we've driven through that for miles and miles along little back roads to get to this nature reserve uh, owned by the Cumbria Wildlife Trust. Interesting. You'd imagine that bridge won't have been there until the arrival of the steel industry back mm. in the mid-1800s. Yeah. So it was always like a foreign land yeah, that's right. So the arrival of the industry brought the railway, brought the boat industry and submarines and all the malarkey that comes with it in the development of the town, but it linked the Isle of Walney to the mainland. And today's episode, sometimes we have a theme, don't we, or sometimes we concentrate on a person, but today we're having a genial wonder and we will learn little bits about natural history, about some of the wildlife here, about some of the human and cultural history of this island as well. It's a summer's wonder, and we're wandering with two people. We've got Jamie Normington back, the education and recruitment officer for the Cumbria Wildlife Trust, who joined us when we were in the Petrol Valley and walking to Rear. And then we've got Helen Wall, who comes from Dalton, who lives in Barrow now, and has a great feel for the place. It's home. Lovely. We're looking over the headland there, and there's sand dunes there's all kinds of wildflowers and we can hear in the background some gulls as well so i'm really excited to go and meet jamie and helen Well, we're on our first trek of the day. We've just left the visitor centre and car park at the South Walney Island Nature Reserve. And we're 
plodding beyond the building along a concrete path leading due south, I'd say. Uh, over the fence there's an area of sand dunes covered in grass. I can just see the white lighthouse over to the east and um, I'm in the company of Jamie Normington. Well, Jamie, this is a great opportunity for me because it's the very first of my maiden visit to Walney Island. Just remind people of your background. Yeah, I'm Cumbria Wildlife Trust's Education and Volunteer Officer. I'm on part-time furlough now as we're coming back to work mm -hmm. through this time of pandemic. Um, and, and the reserve is open with some changes, obviously, to keep everyone well. We see the benefit in people being outdoors at this time. Um, we've got to get our, our green well-being going, haven't we? So I'm really glad you made the trip down to the tip of Cumbria. Um, this is a holiday abroad. came over the sea to get here in Barrow Town. It is. It's absolutely brilliant. I think we forget because, you know, it's, it's a busy town centre. But you come here and we can see for miles and I don't think I can see more than six people and we're three of them. So, you know, what a place to be. Absolutely. And in our company today also with Jamie is Helen Wall. Hello, Helen. Hello. Uh, are you a, a Barovian? Well, I'm from Dalton and you're really not allowed to say from Barrow, but it is within the Barrow Borough. Ah, uh, distinction is very well appreciated. You're a county councillor. Yeah, I was a journalist at one point. <laughs> I was on the local paper for about 30 years. And uh, among the things I covered, I was the arts correspondent, which was a job I made up for myself. And then when I left that, I, I really wanted something else to do, a new mm -hmm. career. So I, I uh, got onto the local council, the borough council and then the county council. I'm the chair of the Wildlife and Heritage Advisory Committee. There aren't many councils have one, but we have one and they even let me chair it. And we're very passionate about people appreciating their history and wildlife and their heritage and uh, how it all goes hand in hand and it just helps your well-being if you're interested in that sort of thing it's better for you clearly I, I noticed there's a caravan site just down the road there yeah and i believe people from barrow almost live in the caravan site for their holidays their weekends they do very high percentage of local owners because there's nowhere better to go Yep. The people who live on Walney are really passionate about living on Walney. They love it. What do you feel is really special about Walney? I think it might have something to do with its size and its shape. It's ten miles long and it's only a mile wide. And it's got, it's got boundaries. When you're on Walney Island, you know you're on an island. Mm. You can see the sea that side, you can see the sea the other side. And it's just got beautiful, lovely landscapes. It's got wonderful wildlife. It's got long, long beaches with shingle. It's got some of the most important vegetated shingle in Europe. Things growing in among the, the, the pebbles. Absolutely gorgeous. It's got internationally important nature reserves at either end and uh, some really great people in the middle. I noticed the salt marshes and, and uh, the, the sense of, of people on their bicycles and running yeah. and walking is very much a people place. Uh, and it forms a shield to Barrow and that area there, the southern end of Cumbria. You're on a special world facing the south. This is the, the glorious south. You'll see the very southern tip of Cumbria. Oh. when we walk down that way. Well, I've been to Kershaw Foot, which is the north. Very north, tip. yeah. <laughs> I, I so. didn't mean to go to all the four. <laughs> four corners of Cumbria. That sounds yeah. like the makings of a new podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, back to Jamie. You've got your plans, because you know this area instinctively. You will want to lead us on a particular route. 
yeah, there's a there's a number of paths around the reserve, depending how far you want to go. Um, this is the kind of medium route that I would class it as. Happy um, medium. <laughs> happy medium, exactly. And it gives us the best of both worlds, because we're going to move from the sort of busier side, where you first arrive, down towards the sea, and then along the top side of the coast to the very tip where the lighthouse stands, and then come up the other side of the spit. Um, at certain times of year, as the tide comes in, it brings the birds and even the seals towards you. I think we'll see the best of everything today. I think it's lovely, a, a name like the spit, like you get at Holderness, and these particular end of estuaries, uh, a, a shifting environment where the tides come together, constantly changing the land shape. Fascinating. Anyway, we'll plod on. Helen, now yeah. you're a comparative uh, Barovian, a <laughs> Dalstonite. Is that what they're called? Daltonian. Daltonian, yeah. right. So you'll have a feel for the history of this particular setting. Uh, Walney Island is the landscape all of its own. How was it formed? You're quite right, yeah. It was formed from uh, moraine that was brought down from a glacier down the Dudden Valley. Mm -hmm. And when it got tired, it dumped its load and created... Walney, so it's a shingle island. Yeah, I like it's, the idea of it being tired. Yeah. <laughs> melty, it got a bit melty. Yeah. It's a shingle island, so it's very vulnerable to erosion. It's formed by the wind and the rain and the tides, so it looks like it is because of its it, setting. Yeah, its shape, it's uh, the long shape with two horns on it, maybe. Yes. Yeah, or, or legs. The tide has sort of built up these two legs coming round, the sea coming round this, this barrier island which protects the docks of Barrow. Mm -hmm. um, from well before there was any kind of a settlement there. Well before. What's his earliest human uh, connection would you say? Certainly on the north they've got middens from uh, some Neolithic-y sort of people. Mm -hmm. Not the absolute far back Stone Age but right. um, getting a, a bit nearer and the famous Langdale stone axes that are found all over the country came right. down to here as, a, as rough cuts and were polished by the people in the sand. How in interesting. The sand, I mean, can you imagine how much how many hours you must have spent polishing a piece of Langdale stone uh, yeah. into a smooth... It's volcanic, just a, really hard volcanic rock. Yeah. The hours, painstaking. Round away on... Which just goes to show the market for them... <laughs> In a polished state, must be really high. It's rather like jewellery. You wonder was... who got the uh, got the, the profit from it, don't you? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and it was part of a chain of the industry with a big trading connection. Exactly. And yeah. so the maritime connection was yeah. very important. It was Carried all sea it. travel here. So you yes. couldn't get to this, no. this bit of Cumbria well, overland. You had to come by sea one way or another, either yes. walk across the sands or, or come on a boat. Yeah. It's yeah. very Viking. Villages, north scale and bigger. They're all names that, are, that were Viking. Yes. Uh, who came from Ireland, of course. Yes. And you can see the Isle of Man from here. Yes. And you can imagine, if you were sort of Neolithic, Mm -hmm. looking at the Isle of Man and wondering what it is yes. and wanting to be there. Like making a big your, giant out at Making sea. your boat and wanting yeah. to get yeah. over there and have a look and see what's going on there. Well, we can explore <laughs> more recent history later on as we wander on, but the monks were here in the 11th century, was that? Yes, they were first Savignac monks and then Cistercians took over and they built Furness Abbey in a nice secluded place, which used to be Dalton and now is Barrow. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, they farmed Walney. They had, they had granges out here and um, there are paths, medieval paths, 
that get dug up every now and again that um, the Lay Brothers farmed and then gradually the local peasants took over the farms. Um, yes, I've seen the Riggan furrow as I came along here, so it was something where grain was grown. Grain and sheep. Furnace Abbey monks were big on sheep, as, as you know. <laughs> yes. Anyway, we want to get ourselves into the uh, dunes a bit more seriously now. I mm. think we ought to do that, and Jamie will lead us on. We'll come back to you in a minute, Helen. Mm. Thank you for your help. Well, at long last, and it isn't very long, <laughs> I can see the sea, and a myriad wind turbines. Uh, I gather Walney Wind Farm was at its peak, the largest one in the world. <laughs> well, I think it's been beaten by another one quite close to it. There's an amazing array of wind turbines out there, and the sea is as calm as a mill pond. And I'm on some loose sand, which is quite distinct, Jamie. Having been on grassy sand hitherto in our walk to get to here, this is childhood fun sand. Mm. What are we watching here? What we found here, there's, there's historically two big things that affected what were going on with the sand dunes in Walney. And, and one is there's been grazing down here for a long time. So grazing animals, uh, leaving dung behind, adding some enrichment to the soil. As well as that, there was one of the biggest gull colonies, I think the largest mixed gull colony in Europe some decades ago. So an awful lot of guano building up as well, creating great soil enrichment, perfect conditions for growing perhaps things that we didn't really want to grow here. And what we've learned, as we learn constantly with ecology and with, with natural themes, dunes are meant to move. So getting away from that human perspective of going, oh, there's sand everywhere, well, actually, that's what dunes are meant to do. And the things that live on dunes, be they lizards or be they flowers, need a mobile habitat. Mm -hmm. you, you know, we're not King Canute here. We're not trying to stop things happening. This is something that happened naturally. We're trying to reverse it by stripping the turf back, getting the dunes on the move again, welcoming back the dune and coastal plants and, and the wildlife. We'll remember all the work we put into trying to steady these environments and change them and make them not what they're meant to be. And, and at least we had the courage to go, yeah, we've got this wrong. Let's, let's try something new. And we've pioneered something here that now this year is starting nationally, multiple sites around the country with European funding behind it to get dunes back into good, healthy condition. There's a really interesting thing that happens with sand. Burrowing animals, as you say, you can dig into this. So whether you're thinking about the burrowing birds and sand martens or the burrowing, burrowing amphibians, natajack toads they need to be able to get into this stuff to nest and to regulate the temperature in the case of natterjacks and if that was solidified we're going to lose that so so that's why we want this to move send you back to the sands of time because that's what you'd use wouldn't you perfect hourglass figure mark that's the one <laughs> anyway we've got a bit further <laughs> I love transition points, and here we have a transition point where the loose sand, which we've been glorying in, suddenly becomes a grassy path, and suddenly you have this transition into a, a very floral landscape, Jamie. Yeah, it's August is a great time for a lot of these June flowers. It's where the colour comes in now, as you see over there, the purple blue of the harebell, the yellow of the ragwort. We've also got this plant just behind me, really vibrant blue, um, Vipers bugloss as well, which is a plant people will come to see down here. Mm -hmm. um, got a very particular thing, bugloss, Mark, I know you like your word origins, yes. is um, an ox tongue. So it must be, a, I don't know what an ox tongue looks like, I know ox tail, yeah. but um, so yeah, Vipers bugloss we've got there, wild pansy known as heartsies, um, yellow horned poppies ahead of us. Helen, is this something you know very well? Uh, I have my 
flower spotting places, my flower mooching. Ah. And this this is definitely one of them. But the Viper's Bugloss is absolutely one of the stars of Cumbria, in my opinion. And South Walney is the only place, apart from the odd one, it's the only place I've seen it grow. Right. And, and it grows here like everywhere. It's fantastic. And of course, everywhere we're looking now is just yellow with um, ragwort. Yes. Yes. Uh, Heartsease is another one. Heartsease, you know? the little. Yeah, the little June pansy. It comes in lots of different colours. It's a sweet little thing. I've got the seeds ready to grow in my back garden, my backyard next, oh, <laughs> next year. And on the June, there's one very special plant, Jamie. Yes, just a little further north, I think, from us. And we've got the Walney geranium, which is a geranium that only grows on Walney. Um, so that's something that's rather special and excites the flower hunters. And we've, we've had people travel a great distance now. Lockdown was released to come and see things in the season. These are flowers that don't grow elsewhere, as, as Helen says. So it's a great thing for people coming from further afield as well to be able to share with them. You treasure that plant as well, do you, Helen? It's a lovely, beautiful little thing. It's, it's very pale pink with deep pink veins. And it's just like your, your garden geranium. But uh, the only place in the whole world where it grows is on this island. Well, I can see the white lighthouse and just behind it is Ingleborough. A little bit hazy at the moment. And then dead ahead of me, I can see Hesham Power Station, a very bulky building, rather like the shipbuilding buildings in Barrow itself behind us. Beyond there, you can see Wardstone and Wolfhole Crag and Haythornthwaite Fell. And sweeping round to the south, in the far distance, yes, I can see Blackpool Tower. Even in this haze, it's a standalone feature. We've got a whole sweep of the estuary of Morecambe Bay. It's a majestic view. And I can see at the edge of the water, and it's quite an expansive beach. Lots of birds, Jamie. Yeah, from here, I think cormorant and gull. The important thing here, as you say, is actually Morecambe Bay. This site has multiple designations of protection. Globally important, certainly European-wide important and also nationally important for us. So different citations for different things, whether it's a habitat-based thing, a bird-based thing. At the centre of it all is Morecambe Bay. It's a terrific feeding area, particularly for birds. And they'll tend to be on the tide line. So now the tide's a long way away coming in. That's the line of all the birds taking the best of the feeding opportunities. We'll see them closer as the high tide approaches at 8pm tonight. We've got this 360-degree view and then suddenly the punctuation of the lighthouse there that we'll approach. It's just, um, it's such a contrast to where we've been even five, ten minutes ago. Interesting name, Morecambe, because it means sea bend. I didn't know that. There's a Morecambe up at the Wampool to the north of Cumbria and a comparable one, much bigger one here, so it just means the sea bend. And it's very old. Cam is crooked. Moor is mare, the sea. Backtracking to Ingleborough, there is the white lighthouse a very striking building beautifully kept in nick before the brick one there was a wooden one with mm. a paraffin or a, an oil lamp in the top and surprise surprise it burnt down <laughs> so they built uh, they built the new one and uh, it's absolutely mega famous that um, peggy braithwaite was the lighthouse keeper there the only female lighthouse keeper in the country she'd taken over from her father uh, who'd been the lighthouse keeper and, uh, and yeah, she, she, was, she was very dedicated to her job. There was a night when the mechanism that turned the light conked out and she stayed up all night and hand-turned that light. 
I think the, the other thing that's, that's fascinating is that the reason that um, Port Lancaster, Glass and Dock put a lighthouse here was actually for what they call the Jamaican sugar trade. But the Jamaican sugar trade is actually a, almost a part euphemism, I guess. This was to do with textiles going away from here to Africa, slaves being taken from Africa to the Caribbean and the Americas, and then sugar coming back in to the UK. So the triangular trade, which all hinged around slavery, is actually the reason the lighthouse existed in the first place. The actual purpose of it is nothing to do with Barrow at all. Its function was to do with the movement of ships from the south. That's right. It was what we now call, I guess, the Port of Lancaster Authority to do with the shipping from Lancaster. Lancaster was one of the key West Coast ports. So we'll now move on to the other side of the island, and I can just see the turrets of some description just beyond there. We're approaching the, the lighthouse, uh, but just short of it, there's this concrete structure, definitely Second World War. It's got some wonderful graffiti in it, inevitably. People find such things so attractive for that purpose. Jamie, what, what, what would this be? Uh, this particular one uh, was a searchlight emplacement for World War II for protecting the coast. Mm -hmm. So the searchlights detect anything coming in overland from sea, gun emplacements behind to try and attack it. There are pillboxes elsewhere on the island and further around to the north there are also some practice trenches dating back to World War I and rifle ranges. Very often those practices, I think, all around the country took place on the coast to be away from people. Mm -hmm. Sometimes for secrecy, sometimes for safety. But then they, they left the issue in a time of, of dire national need of what do you do with it afterwards? Because yeah. these are formidable yeah. and it's still standing 70, 80 years later. Um, and no one's quite sure what to do about it. So, Helen, what do you think this purpose was for this structure? It would be to protect the shipyard, because the shipyard is massively important, and it did, it did get bombed, and Barrow did, did get bombed. And there's a... Over on Sandscale Halls, there's a, a thing built that was a sort of pretend Barrow. We put walls and lights and tried to lure the aeroplanes away from... Uh, Away from Barrow thought, onto, thought, onto Sandscale and just bomb, just bomb a load of sand dunes. Yes. And in the, the dark, you wouldn't know the difference. Well, the Lord Haw Haw, the, the, the broadcast they put out during the war, said, and we weren't taken in by your pretend Barrow, we <laughs> came and bombed Barrow. Like Helen says, the, the thing that we forget about now, although the shipyards are very much in evidence, is if we go back in time, Barrow produced the first midget submarines that were used against the Tirpitz. Um, the first nuclear submarine, first rigid airship, you know, those really innovative, at the time, innovative mm -hmm. ways of travelling, but ultimately turned to war. Mm. So strategically, I guess, it must have had huge significance there for the Royal Navy. Um, you know, one of the flagships of the Royal Navy was built recently in Barrow. Right. Um, so we've got reasons why Barrow would be seen as a target, whether to hit morale, to hit the production, to hit the shipyards. So it had to be taken very, very seriously. Yes. And, and it's perhaps not spoken about more widely nearly often enough because um, other things take people's attention, be it the Battle of Britain or, or elsewhere. But actually this was a very, very important place for the, the defence industry, the defence of the country. And Barrow, and uh, putting some context on it, it was, it grew in the Victorian times as a steel town and, and at one time I gather it was the largest in the world. Uh, the Bessemer process was invented and here we had the iron ore that Bessemer's used. It yeah. was very, very pure. 
And so we built the biggest steelworks in the world. In the and where where they brought the coal from? Durham. <laughs> All the way round the northern tip of Caithness and It was down. the big floor in barrows, everything. One of the reasons they've, they, they've found salt here uh, on Walney was they were digging for coal. The reason they found the iron ore was they were digging for coal. They were, everybody was convinced there was coal here. Everybody has dug everywhere for coal. Nobody's found any coal. But <laughs> I found everything else. Uh, from the steel industry came the logic of, because of the maritime connection, for shipbuilding. Build ships. We've, built, we've got steel, let's build ships, let's build steel ships. Which company moved into the town to develop this whole shipbuilding industry? Vickers was the, the big name. The thing about Barrow, 1845, there was about 200 people lived here. And then they wanted to employ thousands and thousands and thousands of steelworks. So there was nowhere for people to live. There just wasn't anywhere. People lived in huts. Mm. And so Vickers built Vickerstown on Walney. Nice houses, all newly built, all ready for the uh, all these workers. And there's a real hierarchy of houses. You walk around Vickerstown, you just see it, you can't help it. The, the beautiful big houses of Empress Drive overlooking the, the water, very smart, they're for the managers, mm-hmm. and they're really senior managers. And then almost as nice, a bit smaller, not, not quite as many bedrooms, down the, the promenade, for instance. And then you go further back and you've got the semi-detached and then you've got the terraces. And you got your house in Vickerstown if the foreman at the yard liked you and approved of you. If you were a good, sober, hard-working bloke who didn't bash his wife up too often, you got your house. And, and that was how it worked. So that point you make about this uh, small settlement of a few hundred people suddenly burgeoning into... 40,000 40, people. 40,000 people. It's almost unprecedented. I've heard really. it described as the, the biggest migration in Europe's ever saw in the space of time. So people yeah. came from all over Britain? Yeah, Derbyshire, Nottingham, Scotland, a lot of Scots. There were blocks of flats slung up called the Scotch buildings because Scottish people were used to tenements. So they're down now, but they were built. Ruse was built for the Cornish tin miners. I wondered about that, the you know. The architecture there is totally different from anywhere else. Do you know, that I, I saw Ruse, and I knew it was a Cornish name, and I thought, that's intriguing. And the Irish will have come here. Yeah. And, you, and that would have brought a whole mix of language. Yes. So the Barovian... The Barrow is, accent. Yes. <laughs> Are the key words that you can remember that relate to the Barrow language, chatter? My children went to Parkview School and then came home with a sort of language that was didn't have consonants, just guttural sounds and vowels. Right. I was lying in bed ill one day and my daughter stuck her head round the door and said, jot out. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I I knew what she meant. And when I tell people the story, they know what she meant. But I just laughed. Yes. I said, jot out? (laughs) Do you mean, do you want anything? (laughs) It was sort of the heyday where everything was built, the pubs, the churches, the sports areas, you might say. Uh, yeah, there was uh, Vickers Sports Club up in Hawcourt, which has now been taken over by the community. They had the Vickers Brass Band, was a band that played in the championships up, up with um, Black Dyke. Black Dyke. And all, all those yeah. famous bands. I know a story of someone who got a job as the, the photocopier watcher <laughs> because she was a really good flugelhorn player. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, they employed a conductor. The last conductor they employed was um, Bill McGinn, who was a really top, one of the country's really top conductors. And he was, we're getting Bill McGinn, we're getting Bill McGinn. And he was a lovely bloke. Oh. And he came 
and ran the brass band and it, it won quite did a lot of stuff. Did it justice to yeah. the town? That's it it the did, thing. yeah. And people, you know, the people played in it. You know, they talk about working class chavs. But these working class people played in brass bands and sang in male voice choirs. They had passion. And, and you know, they, they played Tchaikovsky and they sang Mozart. Great place to stop here. I can look uh, to the north, I can see Peel Island and Roe Island across the bay there, looking north. In the foreground, we've got a, a, a watery area in a hollow. What's all that about then, Jamie? This one in front of us was a little bit of almost, looks like brickwork down there. This was a, a salt works, um, a salt works that I think operated for a few years, but was never really financially successful. There was associated housing down here and a whole community built around salt, salt production. What you often find with, whether it's called brownfield or post-industrial or whatever else it may be, you can turn it to something else. And these are filled up as lagoons, again, giving us some nice habitat for wildlife here. So it's possibly not the most picturesque part of the reserve, but it's got huge value for wildlife. And that's, that's the thing we play between. And what can we do with what's left? Because this is still a working site. It's adapted over time over here. Huge, you know, probably 10 times, 20 times larger. To the south is the remnants of um, gravel extraction here. Very, very premium quality gravel construction product. And the extraction here, as we look across, I can see at least 15, 20 geese. I'm going to take a guess at over there without my binoculars. Canada geese. Um, and then looking round on, along the edges here, there's an awful lot of birds that will just be up along the water's edge. And a few rafts that we've created to create safe nesting habitat on raft space for various birds that will ground nest but want to be away from potential predation. So these are these are remnants of businesses that were here. As I say, salt extraction here and a population to run it. Um, sand and gravel extraction over here. In the very far distance, you can see um, a roofed building, modern-looking barn-type building, mm -hmm. and that's actually um, an oyster farm. Where are they? And the time was that the oyster farm really benefited from the huge number of, of seabirds here. Do you remember I talked about the enrichment of the soil and the droppings and so on? The nutrient level in the water was very high, mm -hmm. and that helped grow on the oysters. Mm. So that was actually a free service to an oyster farm to take advantage of. They could also take advantage of the water coming in and out through here. In fact, the decline in some of the bird numbers meant a decline in droppings, meant a decline of enrichment, which meant poor business for the oyster farm. They had to start buying in their own feed, in a sense, because they were losing what the gulls used to provide free of charge. We haven't seen much gull life, but you say there is quite a distinction between barrow gulls and the gulls that would accommodate themselves on Walney. That's right, Mark. Uh, certainly in my lifetime, we've gone from tens of thousands of pairs of gulls. You know, we're talking numbers upwards of 50,000 mixed gull colonies, huge scale, coming down to maybe 500 pairs, 1,000 gulls of different species. So the numbers have declined dramatically. Now, that's declined particularly, as always, it's to do with habitat availability and food source. The food source that changed in this area was the closure of the tips, landfill sites, terrific opportunities for opportunistic birds. The interesting thing for me is then that gulls adapt, so they move on to other areas, the numbers change and fluctuate. What we've ended up with is a town population of gulls, 
and a nature reserve population of gulls. The nature reserve gulls, through satellite tracking, have been found across Morecambe Bay, ranging for their food. Mm-hmm. The town gulls, nesting upon the big flat roof buildings and hangars we can see, well, they like the town. Mm. They know where the best fast food leftovers are and the bin <laughs> bags and so on. So the gulls adapt, they adapt to their circumstance. Town gulls in the town, nature reserve gulls over the bay. And it's not that they never mix, but they're definitely distinct population suited to where they live. But the numbers have declined dramatically, and I think people who've lived here far longer than me won't necessarily realise that, because their memories are still that of thousands of birds down at Walney. Quite. And we have uh, two bird hides. There's a very distinctive one, an orange one, over to our right, to the northeast. Yeah, that one was the Peggy Braithwaite hide, named for the lighthouse keeper, local legend, Peggy Braithwaite. At the other end of the reserve, at the gate pool as you enter the reserve, is the Nico Timbergen hide. What was he distinctive for? Timbergen, back in the 60s and 70s, over a decade, studied the behaviour of animals, particularly using the instance of gulls here. There were, there were so many um, ways in which he could look at them and examine how they behave, how they feed, how they interact. And he won the Nobel Prize for his studies in really launching this sense of a study of animal behaviour and wildlife behaviour. What he did has a global impact really into understanding our wildlife. This was his fieldwork site, so when we think back to our field study trips and when we go out measuring glaciation and what have you, Tim Bergen was here to study wildlife and this was a great place for him to do it. Tens of thousands, mixed species of gulls, lots of opportunities to, to pioneer, to spearhead his investigations. And uh, it's something that, again, Walney, Barrow, Cumbria should be absolutely proud of what he achieved down at Walney Island. So where did he come from? Nicol Timbergen was from the Netherlands and uh, I think he was working or studying with Oxford University when he was working on these studies. But um, he wrote the natural history book on gulls. Uh, if you look at the New Naturalists, I think it's called, those rather nicely oh, illustrated those. books. Yes. And, and he, he's the author of the gull book from back then, and gull behaviour. I might have one of those. Yeah. They're very much of their time central references for new thinking. We're coming along this track and it made me think of the actual track I saw back there, the railway track. It used to supply coal to the lighthouse, I believe. But there's a rather interesting, quirky story about railways here, Jamie. Yeah, Thomas the Tank Engine, the Isles of Sodor and around, were all based in this part of Britain. Um, and again, another thing that Walney played a part of. Now, I don't think the Reverend, the writer, Reverend Audrey, actually visited, but I guess he looked at the map and thought, that looks like a fantastical place, and had the story of the trains moving around, and I think there's a town in the book of, of Vickers Town and so on. And uh, so, yeah, we've got a connection there with children's literature, now with Thomas the Tank Engine. We don't often uh, record this late on in the day, but it's a lovely, balmy evening, and the light is absolutely delightful, and the breeze is gentle. It's an all-round Cumbrian balm. It's rather fun, it's coming down the shingly bank here. Uh, and you can see the different tide levels, very distinct little minor shelves, so you get different levels. And you've got a lovely view with this sinuous view of the, of the inlet of the sea towards Peel Island and the Monk's Castle there. And Black Coombe beyond uh, Vickers Yards uh, in Barrow. You see Town Hall in Barrow from here, it looks a long way off, doesn't it? The real interest here is invisible today, uh, it's the seals. 
That, that's right, Mark. This would be, on any visit to Walney, if the tide was in a little bit more, this would be a possibly best chance of being up close with Grey Seal. As you walk along the, the trail back towards the visitor centre, where this channel comes in, the tide comes all the way up past these strand lines we can see where the seaweed has been left behind, the whelk egg balls and so on. Grey seals are some of the rarest seals in the world. Mm -hmm. We've got the majority of European seals, 95% of them in our country, 40% of the world's grey seals are in UK areas. The thing that happened to me here as regards the seals was learning that they were just all male. They were all the ones who failed to secure a mate. So we had a, a kind of a bachelor pad, but not in the best sense, really. Lonely Hearts Club, perhaps, more of all the seals. How and I asked a question, and because I knew nothing of marine mammals, we had a great training scheme with postgraduate students coming on to get work experience. They had the time to really study the seals. And I asked why you know why why aren't they breeding and they said well it's the disturbance there's all sorts going on here you know there's the oyster farm there's people who live here there's visitors there's all the other business going on around barrow um two years later they discovered they were breeding uh -huh. and uh, a young woman called jade pioneered the use of a drone camera to fly very high and photograph the seal colonies so she could count them very accurately previously they used to have to commando crawl across this uh, yes. strewn shingle yes. which was very difficult because once the seals are spooked they're gone Yes. And you have to start all over again. So using drone cameras, we got real accurate numbers. We're up to around 400 seals here. We're into single figures of seal pups being born each winter. Five, six, seven pups perhaps each winter. Um, it's a precarious existence. They're born at a tough time of year. They've got to fatten up quickly for the cold. And we really work hard to keep disturbance to a minimum because we don't want panic among the seal colony when the pups are there. But I think it's one of the best surprise conservation stories we had. We deemed it, um, as I say, a colony of lonely hearts and actually it's regenerating now with a few pups each year. Just at the moment I can see a movable area of water and it's the tide coming in. I can hear it. You can see the bore of the tide coming over these sand islands. Yeah. It wasn't apparent when you started talking and in that four minutes phase it started to emerge and it'll soon be up this way. Wow. It's like they're pulling the stage curtain on us, Mark. Yes, yes, your acting career is over. <laughs> well, it's been fantastic to be with you, Jamie. As usual, you've been on fire. You've given us so much today. You've uh, explained a great deal of the bounty of this place and the reason why people should come and come and enjoy this place quietly at slow pace. No bicycles, as it says on the sign here. Uh, thank you so much. I hope we see you again. Thank you very much, Mark. Had a great day. And Helen, similarly, an almost Barrovian. <laughs> You've certainly given us some uh, absolutely gem moments. Thank you for giving your time. It's been a great pleasure. I had a lot of fun. Journey's end, back at the car park at South Walney Nature Reserve. The shadows lengthening, that dusky orange now on the distant Lakeland Fells. And we've had a wonderful wander, haven't we, Mark? And a gentle introduction to the many treasures of this landscape. Yeah, but it was my first visit, as I mentioned earlier. It is a magic setting. And you're so close to the sea here. Mm. You're right at the limits of Cumbria. And you can see right across the bay. 
Yes, and on that note, we should say that if listeners get to the very end of this podcast and continue listening past the fade of the music, we've got a very rare Mark Richards geographical blooper. <laughs> Me? No. It's true. I know where I am all the time. It doesn't happen very often, but this one is a golden one, so I recommend... Uh, <laughs> If you fancy listening to the very end, there's a, a little extra nugget of recording there. Moving on to other matters, Mark. Off the back of last fortnight's podcast with mm-hmm. Dr. Penny Bradshaw, and we spoke about the children's literature of Lakeland. We invited listeners to send in their favourite Lakeland books, mm. uh, children's Lakeland books, and we got a good response, didn't we? People really do respond to the literature of the area. Nostalgia and the coziness of the area and the adventure we'll read out a few of them here so we'll start with mark squires and he says it's postman pat and john cunliffe for me i love the quiet nature of it the ordinariness of the characters the fact that all the adventures were low-key and normal and obvious to identify with it was my little sister who really liked them and we thoroughly enjoyed watching the first tv shows knew all the words to the song In later years, I did a bit of work with Mick Waters, who was featured as the Demon Bowler of Pencaster from (laughs) when Greendale won the Cricket Cup. He was John Cunliffe's boss and an avid cricketer and delighted to be featured. Uh, And he finishes his email, In fact, I was delighted to see the Hal Gill postie just the other day with a small dog in his van sitting up on the passenger seat. So the spirit of uh, Postman Pat still alive and well down there among the Howgills. Very authentic. Next up, Lee Madison. It's Beatrix Potter for me. I spent hours reading the books to my children. However, as an introduction to the lakes as a wilderness to be explored, it was Richard Adams' tragic tale of Ralph and Snitter in the Plague Dogs. Illustrated by Alfred Wainwright, you might know the actual book. Uh, and Wainwright had a, a sense of connection with the reason behind the book. Next up, John Patterson. Beatrix Potter didn't impinge on my life until I was an adult, but Swallows and Amazons and the Coot Club was a staple in my early days of reading books for pleasure as a child. Fell Farm Holiday and Fell Farm for Christmas by Marjorie Lloyd were also read and reread avidly when I got both of them for Christmas from my parents. They've probably given me my lifetime love of the lakes. They sounded like they were set in a real place with real people in a landscape I found I had an affinity with. Happy days. And of course, it was Fell Farm Holiday for you, wasn't it, Mark? Your first Lakeland kids book. Yes, indeed. When I was at primary school, that was sort of the inspiration for me because my mother came from the Dales and Mm. was always talking about Fells and she bought me that book. And although it wasn't the Yorkshire Dales, it was another Dales setting. And actually, it sold me that actually the really great place was the Lake District. There we go. It's, it's interesting how reading at that early age, that impressionable age, can give you a, a lifetime's love, which comes across in many of these emails. Helen Richards. Now, there's a familiar name. I wonder. <laughs> she says, Beatrix Potter. I loved the way the animals had adventures and pushed their luck. And in Ginger and Pickles, I was amazed by the way a cat and dog worked together. I learned to read. Thank you, Beatrix Potter. Leslie Shale. It swallows and Amazons for me. Given to me when I had my tonsils out at the age of eight. I started reading in hospital and couldn't put it down when I went home again. There you go, very good. <laughs> Next up, John Bainbridge. I didn't even know there was a Lake District until Swallows and Amazons. <laughs> uh, Dr. Sarah Whittington of Lancaster University. 
who is uh, studying bracken in Cumbria. Yep. She's writing a book on it. Two votes for Winter Holiday, my favourite ransom book. Uh, that was also picked as one of three of Penny's favourite books as well. So mm-hmm. Winter Holiday, with its very evocative descriptions of uh, snowy Lakeland. Finally, a lovely email from Marion Fothergill. She says, I would like to tell you about a children's book which has very special meaning for me. After the War by Tom Palmer is based on the true story of 300 child survivors of the Holocaust who arrived at the Calgarth estate near Windermere after the end of the Second World War in August 1945. They had been brought to Windermere for rehabilitation and recuperation. They had lost everything. Most were in very poor health, suffering from the effects of starvation and unimaginable trauma. After the War is about brotherhood, survival and human kindness. It is a beautifully written story told through three of the children, composite characters drawn from actual interviews and first-hand accounts from the survivors themselves and from others who were there at the time. The book also captures the essence of the Lake District, including the beauty of the area and the kindness and compassion of its people. My family and I lived on the Calgarth estate and I'm delighted that such a beautiful book has at last been written to tell the story of this very special place and the part it played in helping these children to dare to have hopes for the future. Yeah, it's a magical book. And a lovely email. Thanks, Marion, for getting in touch. Uh, some final housekeeping, Mark. If you'd like to join that conversation, let us know about any favourite children's Lakeland books, please do email us, and you can do that from the website, www.countrystride.co.uk. On the website, we also have all of our past episodes. How many now, Mark? This is 36. 36. You can also contact us via social. At Countrystride1. At Countrystride1, Twitter and Facebook. Finally, it's worth saying, we occasionally reiterate this fact, neither Mark nor myself receive any money for making these podcasts, nor do our guests. If you do want to support us, you can do so by buying our books. And Mark, you've got your Fell Ranger series from... Cicerone. Yeah, I'm working very hard at the moment, finishing off what is the eighth book of a series. Well, we started it 20 years ago. Now we're completely revamping it to make it ultra practical to carry with you and uh, orientate you from the valleys. But it's all the fells, all the roots, and we're making it, I hope, uh, the book for the future, long-term future, encouraging people to value this place and explore it with knowledge. Yeah, they're great books. Uh, so the Fell Ranger series of books by Mark, from Cicerone and you can buy them online via the Cicerone website. Equally, you can support my own work. I've got a series of books all on inspiredbylakeland.co.uk including Terry Abraham's lovely book that accompanies his films and also for 2021 his calendar of the year with some beautiful photography. But for now, from Country Stride and Walney, We're signing off and we look forward to broadcasting in another couple of weeks. Thank you all for listening. While the view opens up here now, you can see Tahitian Power Station dead ahead to the east with Ward Stone on the 
Bowland Fells behind it, and to the right of that in the Weir Valley is Haythornthwaite Fell. And I scan round to the southeast, and my eyes miraculously have alighted on a very distinctive Eiffel Tower. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. You said that on purpose. I did, I did, I did. I like throwing that. Do you do it again?